and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. If you're just joining us this Lord's Day, we as a church spent several months walking through the book of 1 Peter, and today we begin a new book of Holy Scripture, 2 Peter. So let me invite you to turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, now we pray that you would correct our hearts, soften them, align them, reorient them, particularly now in this moment of the preached word, this God-ordained providential time where weekly you feed your sheep. Free our minds from distractions. Help us to love the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for your aid in this moment for weak preacher and weak hearers alike. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you say at the end of your labors? What do you say at the end of your labors to those that you have shepherded? Think about the number of hours, weeks, months, years that an individual may spend time with others, writing them, exhorting them, encouraging them, pastoring them. What do you say to them when those labors, when your life is almost over? This seems to be very much Peter's concern in this second epistle, this word of God known as Second Peter. For you see, it's very clear from the text that one of the things that Peter has on his mind is his soon-to-come death. Look down at chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Boys and girls, that phrase, put off this tent, doesn't have to do with camping. Peter is saying that soon his soul is going to be separated from his body. Soon he is going to die. So his concern, his impulse is to remind the readers of the things that they already know. That's the answer to the question. What do you say at the end of your labors? You remind people of the same gospel of Jesus Christ. You press them, you push them, you point them in those last few weeks, months, years, if you know that you have them, to the things of Christ. Peter is essentially saying, I'm going to die soon, but I want to make sure that you don't forget. 
Well, now we've said Peter. In this congregation, I don't think I have to press you to understand that it was Peter, the disciple, the apostle of Jesus Christ, who wrote this letter. But if you just go up on the internet or you read books about this letter, there are a lot of theories about who wrote it. For me, it's sufficient that the first two words of the book say Simon Peter. But just to address the fact that we need to understand that that's an accurate rendering under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as to who wrote this letter. Let me give you some reasons from the book itself as to why we're right to understand that it's Peter, the author of 1 Peter, who wrote 2 Peter. That it's Peter, the guy who denied Christ three times. The man who had to be corrected by the Apostle Paul about living out the fruit of the gospel. That it's Peter, this one, who wrote this book. Firstly, The first verse attributes it to Peter. It would be a little bit strange for the Holy Spirit to trick us. (laughs) It says Simon Peter, but it's not really Simon Peter. So the first verse is attributed to him. But notice further down in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1 what is mentioned by the author. We'll get there, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, but notice what he says. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then notice verse 18. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. There were only a few people with Christ at the transfiguration. Peter was one of them. So here... The human author is claiming to be Simon Peter and claiming to be present at the transfiguration. But if you turn over to chapter 3, verse 1, what do we read? Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. So this author has been with Christ at the transfiguration, calls himself Simon Peter, and has already written one letter. (laughs) First Peter. But lastly... 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, that we just read a moment ago. This author claims that it was Jesus Christ who showed him that he must shortly put off his body. And of course, we do have a record, don't we? In the Gospel of John. That Peter, spoken to by Christ, would go where he doesn't want to go. Where men would take him where he doesn't want to go. That is death for the glorious name of Christ. So I labor here long enough just so that as we dive into this book together, it becomes crystal clear that we can trust the first two words of the book. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's who's writing it. He's a bondservant of Christ. He's an apostle. He's seen the risen Christ. He's been sent out to be that foundation of Christ Churches planted down through the ages. But notice he has an audience. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Of course, there are initial readers, but this is ultimately written to every believer who shares in the faith of Jesus Christ with Peter and the other apostles. This is to us. And should the Lord tarry 2,000 more years, our great-great-great-great-grandchildren who will be believers by God's grace. It will be for them as well. Let's look then at this opening. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us. 
Firstly, the word obtained. If you're a Christian, it is because you have received your salvation from the hand of God. If you are a believer, it is because God has given you his Christ and given you faith. The commentator of modern times, Thomas Schreiner, writes these words. The statement is remarkable indeed. Faith, which is necessary for salvation, is a divine gift. It cannot be produced by the mere will of human beings, but must be received from God himself. He appointed, as it were by lot, that Peter's readers would receive such faith. To those who have obtained, received, been given like precious faith. Think about this. The precious faith which the Apostle Peter had from the Lord Jesus Christ is the same precious faith that you have from the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit. It is the same as Peter's. It is precious, and you have received it. Make no mistake, friend, if you're here today and you at one point in your life came to Christ, you heard the gospel message and you received Christ. Maybe it was through a sermon preached or a gospel tract that you read and you prayed a prayer perhaps, someone leading you in that prayer. And you called out to Christ, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Your word is revealed to me, perhaps for the first time, that I am a sinner and that I need a savior. And I see your words that you died for sinners and you will save me. And I trust in you. You only prayed that prayer because God by his spirit gave you faith and eyes to see. And then you truly and willingly pressed in and chose the living Christ. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Listen to what the Puritan, a man writing in the 1600s, Matthew Poole, says about this phrase, like precious faith. He says this, quote, not in respect of the degree or strength of it, but in respect of the object, Christ, and the benefits that come by it, justification, sanctification, adoption, etc., in which respect the faith, and then listen, Listen, the faith of the weakest believer is as precious as that of the strongest, end quote. When Peter says like precious faith, he's not talking about the amount. There are those who have stronger faith, there are those who have weaker faith, but strong faith and weak faith both rest in the same object, the Savior who is a rock, who is mighty to save. Now notice, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. But he doesn't end there, does he? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a faith that is received. It's been given by God. It is the same kind of faith, the same quality of faith that Peter and the other apostles have, but it is by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, just for a moment, we won't linger here other than for one passing moment. Notice that the text actually calls Jesus Christ Savior and God. 
Maybe you've just walked into this room and you've heard the name Jesus and you might think he is a good teacher. Maybe you think he was one of the greatest uh, angels or or maybe you've been told that Jesus is a, a wonderful man who was created sort of the first among all creation. That's not Peter's view of who Jesus is. Peter says that our like precious faith is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, his human name, Yeshua, God saves, was born of a virgin some 2,000 years ago with flesh, fingers, eyes, ears, toes, just like us. But this Jesus is the second person of the triune God. He has always been. He has always been the eternal Son of the Father. There has never been a moment when the Son of God has not been. He is God. He is right to receive worship. And we are right to worship Him. Not only as Savior, thank you for saving me, but to worship Him as God. We do not break the first and second commandments of God's holy law when we worship Christ. But notice, secondly, this phrase, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, that this faith is by the righteousness of Jesus. Now, please hear me. There there are going to be many more things we must say this morning, but please hear me. When a person has faith in Christ... They are united to him. And this faith, this salvation is brought about by the righteousness of Jesus. He upholds God's holy law in the place of every sinner who trusts in him. He is righteous. He is perfect. He never sinned in the flesh. All of those 30 plus years of Jesus, an infant A toddler, a boy, a teenager, a young man, never sinning. Thus, he is righteous. Yes, as God, but he is one who kept God's holy law according to his humanity. And he upholds God's righteousness in dying and paying the price for sinners. Listen, friend, if God were to show mercy to you, without a payment for sin, God would not be just. But God, who shows you mercy, does so because of the righteousness of Christ. His perfect life. He looks on Christ instead of looking on you. And when your sins pile up like a mountain, it is Christ who takes them to the grave. It is Christ who bleeds to pay for them. Every thought, every action, every word, all the wickedness of your past, it is Christ who has absorbed the wrath of God for those things in his body on the tree. And so when, the, when we read in this passage that we have obtained like precious faith with Peter, it's a faith in his God and Savior Jesus Christ who by his righteousness saves sinners. How has your week been, Christian? Good days, bad days. Moments where you feel like, you know, today I'm I'm doing pretty well as a Christian. (laughs) 
But other days where you think, I am hanging on by a thread, why would the living God ever put up with me? Because from all eternity, he has given you his grace. He elected you. At a moment in time, he converted your soul through the work of regeneration. He united you to Christ. And you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And listen, friend. Your standing before God is not in your righteousness. So Peter, the one who has Christ standing in front of him and can deny him three times, can say, I'm looking to another. I'm looking to Christ. So this precious faith has an object that is Christ. And it's Christ's righteousness. There's a doctrine that you need to know if you've not heard this word. It's called the the doctrine of imputation. That the sinner, when he or she looks on Christ, is credited with the righteousness of Christ. And that Christ, 2,000 years ago at the cross, it is a glorious mystery, has already been credited with the sins, the sinful record of the sinner. Some theologians would call this the sweet exchange or the great exchange. That Christ's record is placed on our account, not infused to our account, but placed on our account. And our record of sin is placed on Christ. And through this sweet exchange, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Do you believe that today, Christian? Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've said it before. We'll likely say it again with New Testament letters. We don't write letters like this. Dear John, (laughs) comma. Dear wife, dear son, the letter writing style was different in the first century, and by God's grace, we get a bunch of doctrine in the opening words. Notice in verse 2, Peter says this, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We won't linger here this morning, but it is interesting that Peter believes somehow that grace and peace can be multiplied in the life of the believer. You can actually have more peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. You can actually grow in grace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. But notice the next phrase. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Peter says that this grace and peace can be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, as we walk through this letter, knowledge becomes a key theme of this letter. The concept is mentioned at least 11 times in this letter. It's everywhere. We'll do a survey in just a moment as we close. Peter is concerned looking at the soon coming of his death, that people understand, that they be reminded in, that they're stable and set in this knowledge of God. What is this knowledge? 
Well, it is ultimately relational knowledge of God in Christ. It is gospel knowledge. It's saving knowledge of God in Jesus. Just look at a sample set of verses. Chapter 1, verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Or how about verse 8 of chapter 1. For if these things are yours and abound, that is a set of virtues, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or how about chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Over and over, this idea of the knowledge of God in Christ becomes the central theme of 2 Peter. So much so that we could do a survey of this book, and I'd like to do that. There are at least three different ways that Peter assumes that this knowledge will impact his hearers. We open with the question, what do you say at the end of your labors? Well, you tell those readers, hey, once I'm gone, I want you to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Your growth in the faith is growing by knowledge of Christ. Secondly, I want you to avoid false teaching through knowledge of God in Christ. And thirdly, I want you to prepare for the coming day, the day of his return and the day of judgment through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the theme of the letter. How often do we want to move past the gospel, move past the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ to so-called higher things? Peter, approaching his death, wants his readers to have grace and peace multiplied to them through the knowledge of God and Christ. So let's look at these three chapters for just a moment and see this theme of knowledge. Firstly then, growing through knowledge. We see this in chapter one. Let me just give you a a sample. Chapter one is full of this theme of growing in the faith through knowledge. Look at verse three. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. You want to be godly? Know your God. How about verse 5 of chapter 1? But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge. How about verse 8 of chapter 1? For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says this. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now there, the word knowledge is not used, but it's assumed. You know things, and you understand what is true. You're growing through knowledge. Look at verse 15. Peter writes this. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, my death, my departure. I'm going to keep telling you 
I'm going to make sure that after I'm gone, you have a reminder of knowledge. And then Peter goes on a long discussion of where knowledge is found. Look at verses 16 to 21 of chapter 1. In this section, Peter points to the trustworthiness of Scripture and its knowledge. Notice what Peter says, verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you, there's knowledge, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What's the foundation of this knowledge? The very word of God, not the interpretation of men. Chapter 1 is all about growing in the faith through knowledge. Chapter 1 would have us to see that our chief way of growing is learning Christ in his word. Brothers and sisters, a practical application of this for us in our day is that we need to meditate on Christ and his word versus looking every which way for how-tos in this life. Maybe you're here and you grew up in a family that was lacking in teaching. Maybe you didn't have the father figure or the mother figure that you wished to have had. And you're always going from every person to every person. Tell me how to do this. Tell me how to do this. Tell me how to do this. And there is wisdom in the counsel of others. But chiefly, my brother or my sister, you need to meditate on Christ and his words. Life and godliness comes through knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. Growing in the faith comes through knowledge of Christ Jesus. Meditate on Him. See Him in the pages of Scripture. Reflect on what He has done. Listen to His commands. Desire to speak with Him in prayer. Join with His people as He is proclaimed in their midst. We grow through knowledge of Jesus Christ. But secondly, in chapter 2, Peter would have us to avoid false teaching through knowledge. There is likely no stronger statement about false teachers in existence than 2 Peter chapter 2. It is sobering. In a day where everyone wants to be a teacher, we ought to deeply meditate on 2 Peter chapter 2. Early one morning, The family was asleep. I was reading through this book, just with pencil in hand, reading 2 Peter chapter 2, and the thought comes to mind, I don't want to be a false teacher. 
As we'll see, brothers and sisters, when we get there, false teachers are strikingly condemned. They are strikingly laid bare in this text. And Peter says, in addition to growing through knowledge, we should avoid false teaching through knowledge. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter 2 verse 1. Uh, This is the man who says he's going to die soon. Listen to the burden on his heart and mind. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now we'll get there, but notice that the concern that Peter has is not so much the false teachers that are out in the world, but the false teachers that will likely intermingle with the churches of Christ. This is an internal concern. And how does this connect to knowledge? Well, verse 1 says they're going to be teaching destructive heresies. That's false knowledge that leads to hell and damnation. Verse 2, Peter says, and many will follow their destructive ways. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So the way of truth, the true knowledge, is going to be blasphemed by these false teachers. Verse 3, Peter says, they're going to bring deceptive words, lying knowledge. They're giving you words of knowledge, but they're lies. Going all the way to verse 18 of chapter 2. Peter says this, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. You ever called false teaching that? (laughs) We typically call it heresy, don't we? Something that's false, that leads to destruction is heresy. What does Peter call it? Great swelling words of emptiness. It's false knowledge. See, Peter is concerned that they grow through knowledge in the faith. But secondly, that they avoid false teaching through knowledge. By God's grace, we're going to spend several weeks in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. And there we will see a list of concerns that Peter has to those who are spreading false knowledge, lies, great swelling words of emptiness. Brothers and sisters, a practical application for us in this chapter will be this. We must abide together in the word of Christ. We must stand in the truth of his word. We must be hemmed in by the guardrails of the doctrines of scripture. One of the practical ways that we seek to do that as a church is that we put out for all to see every new member, every member of this church, Every person who surfs the website of this church, this is what we believe. This is what will be taught here. This is what we will hold ourselves to. Yes, because we love the doctrines of Scripture that could ultimately be called in some way Reformed Baptist doctrines. But if we ever stop to think that the importance of being a confessional church is that we have guardrails that keep us, that keep this 
pulpit and the Sunday school lectern hemmed in by the truth. And the whole congregation has a part in that. The whole congregation confesses that this is what will be taught here. So that if tomorrow an elder, a pastor, a teacher, a gifted brother gets up in this pulpit and starts going off the rails, we don't have to think, well, let's think about that. (laughs) Maybe that's right. There is a time-tested understanding of the doctrines of Scripture that the whole body has. Peter seems to be concerned that when he's gone, false teachers will come into the midst of the church. But brothers and sisters, just having a confession on our website, just calling ourselves Reformed Baptist is not going to keep us safe We ourselves must love the word of Christ. We must love the knowledge that comes through his word. Brothers and sisters, this street is littered with churches that 50 to 100 years ago were solid, orthodox, Christ-proclaiming churches that have abandoned him and whose lampstand has now been removed. What do you say at the end? I want you to grow in the knowledge of Christ and I want you to avoid false teaching through the knowledge of Christ. Who he is, what he's done, and what he says in his inscripturated word. See, brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a religion of thoughtful speculation. But it is a faith of continued reception of declared truths. Let me say that one more time. Christianity is not a religion of thoughtful speculation. It is a faith of continued reception of declared truths. The Old Testament people of God needed the prophets to say, thus saith the Lord. The new covenant people of God needed the apostles to And then the men of God standing on them down through the ages to say, Thus saith the Lord. Peter's concerned that there will even be some who come who say, Thus saith the Lord, but they're saying things that the Lord has not said. So knowledge is a theme of this letter, boys and girls, and Peter wants these Christians to grow through the knowledge of Jesus and what he said. And he wants them to avoid bad teaching through the knowledge of Jesus and what he said. But lastly, in chapter 3, we'll see this. Peter wants these believers to prepare for the coming day through the knowledge of Jesus. Look quickly at chapter 3. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. I'm reminding you. Verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words. There it is again. Remember the words. Remember the knowledge which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Mindful of the words. Okay, well then where does he go in chapter 3? We'll look at verse 9. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise or what he has said that you know. 
as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm excited about getting to this verse as a bunch of Calvinists together. Notice the chapter opens. I want you to be mindful of his words. Secondly, in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning what? His words, his promise, what you know. Verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise. I don't want to make too much of that phrase, but what, what does that mean? Well, we, Christians, according to what God has said, and we know, believe. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's the knowledge of Christ and what he said that prepares us for the coming day. Look at verse 15 and 16. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, what is that? The new heaven and the new earth, the return of Christ, when all things will be made new. Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. And then notice what Peter says next about the writings of Paul. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is calling the Apostle Paul's writings Scripture. Knowledge to be received. And Peter ends this way in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What we haven't read in this chapter is the discussion of Christ's return, verses 10 and following. How are we to prepare for it? Well, we're to look to his promise. Let me submit to you, brothers and sisters, that our chief preparation for the day of Christ is not studying the cultural winds of our age. It's not trying to fortify our homes and our families. It's not seeking to change culture through some kind of human-earned dominion. It is resting in the knowledge of Christ's return that he has given to us. That we know that he's coming, that he's promised a new heaven and a new earth. And how often we are tempted to sort of forge the new heaven and the new earth. I know he's coming, I know he's coming, but I'll go ahead and get things ready. I would just submit to you, brothers and sisters, that as we look at this chapter, Peter is going to tell us, hey, you're going to prepare chiefly for the coming day of Christ through the knowledge of what Christ has said. So what do you say at the end of your labors to those to whom you are writing? Well, you have obtained faith, dear one, Peter writes. It's a precious faith like mine. It's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And I want grace and peace in Christ to be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. And so I want to spend a few chapters helping you to see that it's through this knowledge that you will grow. It's through this knowledge that you will avoid false teaching. And it's through knowledge that you will be prepared for the coming day of Christ. So as we begin Second Peter, brothers and sisters, let us hear the words of Peter when he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you, to us, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would help this word to take root in our souls, that it be through the knowledge of Christ, a relational knowledge, a knowledge of his saving work, a knowledge that all of Scripture points to him. We pray that you would grow us in the faith, that you would help us to avoid false teaching, that you would prepare us for the coming day. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.